Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel Podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. If you've come in uh, since announcements, when I was last up here, I'm still Reg Lewicki. And I think I'm still lead pastor here at the church. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, congratulations. We, we're going to do it today. We're going to get through this book called Habakkuk. And, uh, you know, it's not always comfortable. Uh, these little, especially the little books. The little books are the ones that kind of get you, right? But, but we're concluding this uh, three-week teaching series. And uh, we've called this series Faith in an Uncertain World. And uh, I've been thinking about this idea of uncertainty a little bit. Um, you know, uncertainty in our lives is caused by all kinds of different things and uh, sometimes multiple things at the same time. But, you know, it kind of makes life unsteady. It maybe knocks us off balance a bit. And it could just simply be a result of not knowing what the future holds, right? We don't know about tomorrow or next week or three years from now. We don't know what that's going to look like. And so that makes us a little bit unsettled at times. Uh, sometimes um, uncertainty is caused by the fact that the things that are happening around us don't make sense to us. Like, we just don't have words for it, we don't understand it. And then, of course, it can be a result of things not playing, how, playing out how we thought they would, or more importantly, how we think they should, right? There's this disconnect, and we're like, ah, th- this isn't right, and it just leaves us unsettled again, uncertain. And so as humans, you know, we are influenced and impacted by a number of different things, right? And these different things will change or influence how we respond in uncertain situations. And it doesn't matter if the uncertainty comes from the unknown or because of not understanding or because we have unmet expectations. Uh, we will default uh, at certain times to respond a certain way because of all of our experiences, And so as uh, followers of Jesus, we hope, we pray, particularly here at Lincoln Road Chapel, our desire is that we would be people who are immersed in the Word of God, that we know what the Word of God says to us, believing that God wants to speak to us and that um, He wants to uh, teach us and guide us through it. But we also want to be people who are shaped by His Spirit, that we have a posture of listening, that we allow uh, God to lead and to guide us uh, in difficult times. Of course, we're also people who are influenced beyond sort of the boundaries of our faith. And so we're influenced uh, as people based on our families of origin, based on our different experiences. Uh, We learn patterns of behavior from a very young age, right? We learn how to respond in difficult environments. Um, As well, we live in a very specific time, in a very specific place, in a particular society, in a particular culture. And culture is a good and a beautiful thing at times, right? But we have to also understand that at times, cultures can influence us in ways that maybe are unhelpful for our overall well-being or maybe just aren't in line with God's intentions for us. So we have to hold that intention. And I think about the world that you and I live in, and, and I think about the fact, and I don't know that you'd push back against this, but I think over the years we've become far more individualized as a, as a people, that we're concerned to some degree, and it's not that we don't care about the we, but we really do care about the me, and so we want uh, to take that into consideration. I take center stage. What's best for me? You know, you hear these stories about the inner voice or finding your true self and, and all that sort of thing. 
On top of that, we live in what is really a consumerist society, right? So uh, much of our lives have been distilled down into almost like a transaction. And so we're all about trying to acquire something. If you think about how individualism affects how you consume or, or acquire something, you're always trying to consume or acquire something for your own benefit. Like when you go buy something, you have a, an idea in your head what it's going to do for you, and you expect it to come through for you. And so with that, I wonder if having those two sort of factors in the world, that they're just so commonplace to us. It was like the water that we swim in, the air that we breathe. I wonder if that has allowed things like relationships and community to become far more disposable to us, something that we can maybe just toss aside. You know, uh, I'm not going to rag on social media. Well, yeah, I am a little bit. Um, you know, there's lots of great stuff to it, right? You can stay connected with people who are far away or that you haven't seen in a long time. Um, but, but, you know, social media, to some degree, is teaching us to have loose ties with others. So easy to block somebody. So easy to unfriend somebody if they offend us or we disagree with them. This week, uh, and, and I'm just going to like let you know, like what, Facebook for me is only whatever is right there when I open it. Like I don't do a lot of scrolling. But this week, somebody from my past, somebody that I went to high school with, posted very simply, if you are friends with, and then there was a name, I go ahead and unfriend me right now. And I was like, ooh. That's very interesting. I mean, I don't know this person who was mentioned, and I don't know the situation, so maybe it's warranted. But I thought to myself, that's very interesting because we will cancel people, but we will also cut ties with people based on association. And we do it kind of flippantly. We do it so quickly at times. And I wonder, how is this affecting our ability to be resilient? How does this affect our ability to remain committed to each other, particularly when things get hard? And the reason that I've been thinking about this is that if this is the world that we live in, if this is how we're being shaped, I wonder what impact this posture has on how we relate to God. See, God works in so many ways that are unknown to us. God does so many things in the world around us that doesn't make sense to us. And his will gets played out in ways sometimes that are different than what we want. And so we feel that tension. And so in an increasingly disposable culture, how do we cultivate a faith in God that remains secure, even when things are uncertain? And whether that's the uncertainty of just living in this world, or whether it's the uncertainty of how he's working in this world. And I think this is the real gift of the book of Habakkuk. I think that Habakkuk, this prophet who invites us into his experience of uncertainty, he invites us into his concerns, into his complaints, into his confusion, ultimately into his waiting, and he shows us that it is possible to maintain faith. And he shows us how to trust in God even when things are unknown, even when things are uncertain and hard. We have to know that it's not easy. There's going to be lots of stuff that reside within us as people. There's going to be lots of stuff in the world around us that's going to kind of war against that resolve to remain committed. But it is possible. And so I want to very briefly recap where we've gone through to get to this poem or prayer this morning. So we were introduced to this prophet, Habakkuk, right? He's extremely frustrated with the people he lives among, right? The, the people of God known as the nation of Judah, they're just it's a gong show. They're just making a complete mess of things. They're not living according to the covenant that they entered into with Yahweh. Theirs is a pursuit of self, 
right? It gets worked out in injustice and exploitation, immorality, idolatry. And it goes from Habakkuk being frustrated with his people very quickly to Habakkuk being frustrated with God. He's like, God, what's going on here? Like, why are you not doing anything? Why are you not disciplining your people? It seems like you're getting, letting them get away with it. And so he begins to complain to God. And I want you to think about that for a moment. That is incredible in and of itself. We could just sit with that for a day. He complains to God. To the one who is above all things, the one who holds all things together, and God doesn't dismiss him. God doesn't chastise him or chide him. God actually invites it. He invites us to express how we feel. But into this unknown situation that, that Habakkuk brings to God, we're told that whether God's going to do anything, this answer comes back that is adding to the turmoil. It doesn't relieve Habakkuk of what he's feeling. It actually compounds it. God says he's going to bring the Babylonians to discipline and punish his people. This great pagan nation um, has no regard for his ways or his world or his people. These people, by all accounts, that are more evil than Judah. And so the problem is compounded from just the unknown to the not understanding. Like, what? This just doesn't make sense to me. And so Habakkuk raises a second complaint. He's like, it didn't really work out the first time, so I'll go get another number, and I'm going to tell you my complaint a second time. And I wonder, as you know, the, the, the second complaint is, is issued to God, and God says to him, well, you're just going to have to wait for a bit. And I wonder if Habakkuk had been raised in our environment, if that would have been the end of the book. I wonder if he would have just given up. Just been like, you know what, man, this is not working out. I'm throwing my hands up in frustration. God is not working the way I think he should and would have walked away. But he doesn't. He waits it out, and in the end, the word of the Lord comes back saying he is keeping score, and he's going to bring justice, justice in all the places where God has been rejected and replaced by greed and by pride, hatred, which leads to violence, selfish uh, desires, idolatry. God will ultimately bring justice in those places. And he says it is sure and it is certain, but that it will require more waiting. God hears the clamor. God hears the questions, and he receives them, but it's like he simply says, trust me, trust me. I know what I'm doing. And if anybody's ever said that to you, that is a hard answer to hear. And that is a hard answer to accept. And that is where Habakkuk gives us this model of how we can respond and how we can be people of faith in an uncertain world. So if you have a Bible, Habakkuk, by now you should be well-versed in being able to find it there in the Old Testament or just scroll to it. Uh, no judgment. I copied and pasted it, so it's okay. Uh, so we're in Habakkuk chapter 3 today, and this is its own kind of subsection of the book. It's a transition from sort of this conversation between God and the prophet, and now uh, this is like a psalm-like prayer or a prayer-like psalm. Just hold that for a second, okay? And this kind of captures Habakkuk's response to everything that's come before. So here's our text this morning. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigayanoth. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. 
His splendor was like sunrise, rays flashed from his hands where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Selah. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter as gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. My legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. This is for the director of music on my stringed instruments. First things first is word, uh, shigayanoth, uh, which maybe caught your attention, right? It's not a regular word that we use. It's a word that only appears one other time in Scripture, Psalm 7. And so therefore, scholars are like, don't know don't know what to do with it, but by all accounts, we generally assume it's a note on the kind of psalm or song or prayer that's being offered, that it's some kind of a lament, or maybe this impassioned cry or plea for justice. Then at the end of verse 19, you see that these inscriptions for the director of music to be played on string instruments, and then there's all these occasional moments, right, where this word selah appears. Again, a word we're not totally sure what it means, but, but the general sense is that it indicates a pause in the song. I tried to do that as we work through the text this morning. What this is telling us is that the way that this has been structured is that Habakkuk is using the Psalms as a framework for his prayers. And we can take this prayer, we can take this psalm, we can divide it in, in three parts. There's this prayer or this plea at the front end. And then we have this announcement or this declaration. Some commentaries say it's the coming of Yahweh. And then we have this great response of faith. And so we're going to look at each of these parts in turn. And so the first thing is this prayer or this plea of Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts this way. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. And in wrath, remember mercy. Earlier, Habakkuk was coming to God asking that he discipline his children because of their sins. 
And now he is praying to God on behalf of the people, asking that in his wrath he would show mercy. See, Habakkuk can do this because he knows that God is the God of covenant, that God is the one who has made promises to his people to lead and to care for them, even though he has also promised that he would discipline them when they reject him. And this is who God has always been in the life of Israel. And so this covenantal reality, this is where he resides, the prophet resides, and this is where he begins. I've heard of your fame. God, I know who you are. I stand in awe of your deeds. I know what you have done in the past. So be that same God today. Be that God in our day. Renew them in our day. He says, make who you are and what you do known. Call us to account for our brokenness and our rejection and our rebellion. But be merciful to us in our sin. From there, Habakkuk enters into this meat of the psalm-like prayer. He announces who God is. It's like the coming, as I said, the coming of Yahweh. And I want to walk through uh, this part of the text twice. I, wanna, I think there's a couple of things happening here. So because of that, I'm not going to reread it. So if you have your Bible open, you can kind of scan with me. It's on the screen, but in order to make it all fit, it's quite small font. So uh, if you have a device and you get the U version, it's all there. If you have a Bible, it's all there too. And uh, you can always find that on your phone. So I want to walk through this twice, and and, verse 3 to 15 is the bulk of our text. And as I've said, this is is presenting the coming of Yahweh. Here he is. There's this prayer in this time of waiting, and then now suddenly Yahweh bursts on the scene in glory. And he's described in splendor, and he's described in light, But you read that passage carefully, and he's terrifying. He's so big. He's so uh, strong. He's so powerful. And then there's these parts that say, like, plague and pestilence go before him and come behind him. The earth shakes. The ancient mountains and the age-old hills, they crumble. Mountains and hills are, are symbols of permanence. And yet before God, they are rendered impermanent. He is pictured as riding to war, arrows and spears flashing before him, threshing the nations, crushing the wicked. You could drop this into Revelation and nobody would blink. Pictured here is God's judgment and his justice spreading across the whole world. He is mighty and powerful. Nothing stands against him. Habakkuk describes something terrifying, something that should make us take pause. But then as we pass through the text, maybe a second time, we see that the prophet is saying something else too. There's this line in the opening part where Mount Paran is is referenced. Mount Paran also only exists one other time in the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 33. And it is linked to Mount Sinai, the place where God comes to Moses and binds himself to Israel in covenant. Plagues, pestilence. For Israel and for Judah, this would evoke the memory of Egypt when God sends plagues upon them in order to set Israel free 
from being enslaved. This part about waters roaring and lifting its waves on high echoes potentially of the Red Sea. That as Israel goes out into the wilderness and Egypt changes her mind and begins to pursue here, pursue her, that God splits the Red Sea. Israel crosses on dry land and then the waves crash down and rescue. Sun and moon standing still. Joshua 10, Israel battling the Amorites at Gibeon and God holds the sun and the moon still so that Israel may be victorious. And see, on the one hand, we see this picture of God powerful, terrifying in his might, and yet as we look more closely, we see that it comes in order to rescue his own. It comes to set them free from evil and darkness and wickedness. My neighbors down the street have a dog, a big dog, a big black dog. And uh, they also have this window that overlooks their driveway. And if you're ever hypothetically walking up that driveway to pick your children up, this dog will jump out and put his paws on the window, and he will bark at you. And he can seem very intimidating. But if you are on the other side of that glass, what you know is that his barking is for your benefit. He's letting you know somebody's coming. But you know what else you'll discover? He's an affectionate dog. He's actually a big baby. He just wants his belly rubbed. But when he's up against the window and he's barking, it matters which side of the glass you're on. It helps you interpret what's happening. And I wonder if the same thing is happening here. See, Habakkuk is telling us again, God is holy, and that matters. That he is against all that which is evil and wicked and unjust. But that when he comes against it, when he battles darkness, he does so in order to free and redeem his people. And then we need to remember, here on the outset, before we move into Advent next week, that God comes in all of his glory and all of his splendor in Jesus. That this is the God who joins us in the Mass. This is the God who comes to us in our distress. As the, John says that he tabernacles among us. And then that decisive moment in all of human history. It wasn't electricity. It wasn't that we learned how to make fire. It wasn't democracy. The decisive moment in human history, Jesus confronts evil and sin and darkness and wickedness, all of it head on. And he absorbs all of it onto himself on the cross. And then he is vindicated and victorious in resurrection. There's this moment in the passage this morning, and I don't know that it's messianic in nature, but we'll do a little bit of artistic uh, license here. Listen to what Habakkuk says, and, and think about Jesus. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. You go all the way back to Genesis. And before the curse is laid out, Eve is told the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Paul in Colossians 2 says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away. He nailed it to the cross. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's the good news of Jesus. That in Jesus, God has come and he has confronted all of our sin and all of our shame and all of darkness and all of death and he defeats it on the cross and in his resurrection and he rescues us from having power over us. You see, for Habakkuk, Habakkuk understood. He knew the story of his people. He knew that the story of his people was his story. He knew that God had never failed to deliver them in his own timing. And because Habakkuk knew this was true, in spite of all the uncertainty that he saw around him, he is able to respond this way. I heard, my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The circumstances which are real, which he feels, they're not just uncertain. Life is getting difficult. It's going to get exceedingly more difficult, but he resolves himself to wait patiently for God's justice because he knows it will come. Habakkuk has made his complaint known to God. He has waited for God's response. He's heard him say, I will take care of it in my time. And now he has the faith to believe because this is who God has always been. And he can be trusted to be that God again. And so Habakkuk cultivates a faith that's not determined on circumstances, even if the fig tree doesn't bud, even if there's no grapes on the vine, no crops, no, no fields, no, no sheep and no cattle. Like this is, this is language that is as bad as it can possibly get. He says, even if it comes to that, I will rejoice and I will trust and I will believe that God is still God. Habakkuk does not have resolve. Get this, he does not have resolve because he's a loyal guy. This is a guy who showed up saying, the people that I live with are awful. Could you do something about it, right? His resolve stems from the fact that he knows fundamentally who God is, that he's the God who sets himself against evil in order to rescue people. And for Habakkuk, this is evident throughout the whole story of Israel. Israel's identity is not wrapped up in what she's done for God or what she's accomplished. It's all about what God has done for her. That The God who's above all, who cannot be thwarted, is the same God who has bound himself to her forever, calling her his own. And so Habakkuk knows if it all burns to the ground, if it all comes crashing down, it will be God who is standing there still. And standing with him will be those who belong to him. And that is the great hope that we find in Jesus. That the sin and the darkness and the death of our world, whether it resides within us or outside of us, it does not win. It does not get the last word. Evil and darkness and death still tramples around. It still brings chaos into our lives. But these things have been undone. They are rendered powerless. They bow to King Jesus, 
who has defeated them in his death and his resurrection. Habakkuk rooted himself in the story of God's rescue of Israel, that God took them out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, and because he knew this was true, in spite of calamity, in spite of chaos and uncertainty that all stormed around him, he trusted God in his mercy that he would set it right. And that comes to pass in Jesus. The one who comes not to overthrow empires, the one who doesn't come to, to, to flash a sword, but he comes to overthrow the dark powers that drive empire, to defeat the power of sin, whether that's greed or pride or hatred, selfishness, idolatry, all of it taken on the cross. And he grants new fullness of life and resurrection. Against Paul to the Ephesians this time says, finally be strong in the Lord. His mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. That when evil and darkness rears its ugly head, trust in the armor of God. Trust what he has done for you in Jesus and have the resolve to stand firm, believing that he will deliver you. The world that we live in, the world that we're surrounded by, remains uncertain. We don't have a neat answer for that. We don't have a nice, clean, tidy equation. There's so much we don't know. There's so much we don't understand. There's so much that makes us uncomfortable. And whether that comes to us in inner turmoil as we wrestle with our own selves, whether that's relational breakdown, whether somebody has betrayed us, whether that's just the pressure of a fragile economy, global conflict, ecological distress, we are the ones who've encountered the risen Jesus. We are the ones who've experienced the life that he gives that is stronger than the darkness. The circumstances around us do not tell the full story, and they do not have the last word. The last word belongs to Jesus. The Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. The one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The one who says, behold, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. This is the one who has the last word. And so we are told that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. This is our story. And this is where we place our hope and our trust. And so like Habakkuk, we are invited to ask our questions. Don't be shy to come before God and say, this is troubling to me. Offer your complaints, but then listen to God's promises, which are true and sure and certain and resolve to wait for his timing and be able to pray, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in this day. In our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the evil that surrounds us. And though fig tree does not bud, grapes, no grapes on the vines, no, no olive crop that fails, the fields producing no food, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice. Yet, 
I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. So may we take comfort in the God who has shown himself trustworthy to keep his word. To the God who has disarmed evil through the work of his son Jesus. The one who says, behold, I am coming soon. So come quickly, Lord Jesus, with your deliverance and your mercy. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.